Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Tuesday night edition of the pod here. Danny and I are going to talk about which players have made themselves some money, which players have lost some money. I do need to offer a quick correction. I, I was told that uh, when we did David Nawaba yesterday for Jason Glushan that he did not actually negotiate that contract. So just wanted to get that correction out there to begin with uh, before we started. I also want to make sure to tell you about the COVID-19 podcasts. Ben Taylor was back today. We talked very extensively about what our plan should be for getting out of this, hopefully a little bit more of an optimistic tone. And of course, we did our usual world news roundup uh, as well. Danny, anything you want to talk about before we get started here? I have a couple things in process, but nothing's all the way, all the way there yet. So I'll, I'll save that for future iterations. But it was fun to, it was fun to put this together. Uh, the way, the way that I like to think about it, and correct, correct me if or note if you feel differently, is, is the, I like to imagine that it's how did this player's next contract change from. The beginning of this season, or you could say last offseason, and usually there's not too much of a change from July to October. But how did that next contract change? Did it get longer? Did it get shorter? Did it get more lucrative per season? And so the players who gained and lost the most money is on that. So there are are players who really improved their standing, but didn't necessarily improve their dollar figure. Of course, we talk about that in Most Improved Player and numerous other things, but that's really the line for me. So years and dollars put together in a rough estimate of like how I think about where what they're going to get yeah and for some players we know that the market is now even more unsettled you would imagine than it was before and it wasn't looking like a particularly robust market but for me generally you players who play better than expected are going to improve their market value players who don't are going to reduce it and this will involve some speculation as to what these players are going to get right now. I'm going to do it more in just kind of a general sense of what players have gotten before, really going through the teams, team needs. You know, we'll do that at some point with the mock-off season, but we're not quite at that point yet. So this is just a little bit more general speculation about that. So what we're going to do here, we're each going to give top or count it down from five to one alternating between players who have made and lost money. And then we'll talk about a few other players that that came to mind as well that didn't make our top five. First thing that stuck out to me, though, uh, it seems like there are generally more players this year among free agents who have overperformed than underperformed. I would agree with that. I, I think that there were also there were some players who shored up weaknesses that you could have seen weakening their offers. You know, like that, that's going to be a focus of one of the players I talk about in my top five. And there weren't as many guys that oh, that 
hurt those. And then also some of the players who had rough seasons for their value, like you could think of Blake Griffin theoretically there, they're on long contracts already. So there were there were players whose value eroded, it just didn't erode now. And so that's not a part of it. I will also note that I, I did a little bit of digging, and we'll, we'll put this at the end of this, on 2021 free agents, because I was just going team by team, and it's like, oh, that guy's done something, that guy's done something different. So we're not going to spend as much time on that, because there, there are a lot more superseding things that can change that. But, I, you know, it, if you want to listen to that towards the end. Yeah, another thing that stuck out to me, too, is that a number of the players who really have lost value this year they're protected they've got player options uh, or yeah. etos hmm, i wonder if there's a does that potentially uh presage someone that might be on the list um but yeah i mean i think some of the biggest players where they might have been thinking about opting out you could still say maybe they lost money in, in the sense that they're not going to be in demand as much for a long-term contract but they are protected by continuing at the same salary level with a player option in a lot of cases. So why don't we start on the positive side here? Give me your number five player who has increased his value during this season. My number five is actually a challenging player on this model because it's entirely possible that he opts in to the money that he has so we wouldn't see it, but it's Tim Hardaway Jr. And I think what Tim Hardaway Jr. did this year is that I think he gave teams, including his current one, which is why he's on the list for me, more confidence that he can continue to do this moving forward. He's been a nice complimentary piece for the Mavericks starting next to Luka and the rest of their lineup. And so Hardaway has an 18.9 million dollar player option for next year. It's possible he picks that up and just and just plays on it and then hits free agency at 21 where there's so much more money. But changing that from being what seemed like a clear decision to being an opportun- maybe an opportunistic like guy on the market, I thought that was significant. That's why I wanted to mention him in the fifth spot. Yeah, he did play a lot better than I was expecting that was viewed as a terrible contract that was a big part of the value that the Knicks got in that trade with Porzingis was to also move off of Hardaway's contract yeah remember and remember like we you and I both thought oh Courtney Lee he's really gonna he could help the Mavericks and then Tim Hardaway all that's dead money and then it ended up being largely the other way around well also I think we were looking at dumping Hardaway's contract people were saying to do that would be a take multiple first round picks just to dump that contract yeah and uh, certainly he's uh, emerged as a starter quality of player this year the only reason that I didn't feature him on my list was because he's got that player option I think he hasn't necessarily made himself more money yet because I don't think he's done so much that he's going to be convinced to opt out of that, especially with a, a little bit tighter of a market. So I disagree with you on that to some extent because I think he's played a lot better, but it's ultimately not going to matter because the, the number is so high and that player option. Maybe we could see some kind of an opt out and extend type of thing with the Mavericks, though that could cut into their 2021 cap space as well. But, you know, I don't see a team going above the mid-level exception for him. And so I think as long as that's the case, he wouldn't want to opt out of 17 million to do a long-term contract at the middle of acceptance. Yeah, if so it's I think, gonna take if it's going to yeah. take two years to make that option back, you might as well not do it. Right. Yeah. That that's kind of my thought. So I agree with you. He's played a lot better. He was on my list too, and then I was like, eh, is he really going to opt out? It. My judgment was that I don't think he will. My number five, Fred Van Vliet. He has shown a lot this year. Uh, he is clearly now the best point guard on the market. Perhaps part of that has been because Mike Conley has declined. So I don't know if he has made himself some money, some money but for any team looking for just, he's still only 26. Remember he signed that two year deal as a restricted free agent to get out of restricted free agency. He's going to hit free agency, clearly a starting level of point guard. 
he's established that again this season he's been able to stay relatively healthy and just to continue to be once again a a key part of another excellent team he started most of the year which he hadn't before even though he hasn't necessarily started a point guard a lot of times the next to Lowry but uh, I think you know people are talking about him now getting in the high teens maybe as much as 20 million a year where that comes from is another question but uh, to me I think he's really solidified himself was he on your list he's in a stronger position on my list but yeah he is absolutely on it I I think that to an extent I think that some of how Van Vliet has made himself money might be a little bit overstating a player who is in a very favorable situation that is giving people confidence that it will work in a less favorable situation you know like when he doesn't get to play next to Kyle Lowry in Nick Nurse's system will his job the most important job for a point guard typically is to be able to create offense for himself and others that said when Lowry was out when he when Van Vliet needed more on his shoulders he did well so that that was something that he did that really did boost it so I think there's a, might be a little bit of puffing based on the, the circumstances that he's been in because he's so good at what he does but he'd have to do more but he did show signs that he can do more so yeah I, I have Van Vliet he is he is in a stronger position on my list but yeah absolutely on. so I guess okay, I'll give me uh, give me your number five who lost money. My number five who lost money, uh, I wrote about this actually pretty recently at The Athletic in my point guard piece is Jeff Teague, remember, started this season as the starting point guard for for the Minnesota Timberwolves. I, I don't know that he would have locked in a spot somewhere else moving forward, but he's, you know, the next year will be his age 32 season and... I think he's probably looking at the mid level at the absolute best, and it would sh- it wouldn't shock me if he got less than that. Oh, it's I think it's got to be less than that. Especially, I mean, maybe it could be like a one year deal or something at that right. Level. Like like you, you think about maybe like in I think he's going to have like better credentials than like Ish Smith last year. And Ish Smith got six million a year for two years, but. Teague, it's it's a really hard sales pitch. And the other huge thing that affected him in terms of money is that unlike somebody else who will be in a stronger position on my list because of other things, um, Teague also went to a team that probably won't be that interested in bringing him back other than for a team-friendly deal. You know, I'm not saying he won't be on the Hawks next year. He could be. But Atlanta's not going to break the bank for him because... A, they'll probably want to use cap space and then they won't be able to keep his the hold with bird rights or anything like that. And they already have their point guard of the present and the future in Trey Young. So they don't have that level of urgency, even though Travis Schlenk made a huge mistake not having a capable backup point guard. So I think Teague, it would have, why he's five and not in a stronger place on my list is that I think the market would have cratered for him a little bit anyway, but it is a much clearer crater now than it would have been before. Yeah, you really had the drop in performance last year when he couldn't stay healthy. Right. That's why I, I didn't have him on my list. I mean, I think you can argue that there was some chance he was going to bounce back. And I still don't think he's been that bad this year when he's actually played. And maybe also the trade to Atlanta. Atlanta now gets it that you need an actual backup point guard. And maybe the, they'll feel like they want to just hold on to him uh, and he has shored up some of their backup units. So I didn't have it just because I thought it was more last year where he really had the, the decline. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in the fact that he didn't bounce back, uh, I see where you're going from there. Uh, hold on just a second here, and I will give you my number five player who's lost some money in just a moment. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because 
my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where, do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easier slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us man i just love american giant just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas I'm going to be freezing, but the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm, it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us so my number five player who lost some money is demar Derozan. now oh that's an interesting one i, I think did, i know where you're going with it though yeah he he has a player option for next year as noted but 
I think there was still a thought that he was playing at an all-star level last year and I don't even know that his performance has declined that much but maybe just more of an understanding of his performance the other thing too is that if things had gone well for the Spurs this year perhaps he would have signed a longer term deal there yeah now it really seems like there's no way that's going to happen they uh, uh are not going to make the playoffs in all likelihood and so it seems like that avenue to get a long-term contract anywhere else is lost because again he's not really in a position to work for the teams that have cap space it seems like fait accompli at this point that he's going to opt in to his contract in the high 20s but yeah i mean he, I, yeah. I hadn't i hadn't thought about him seriously partially because it's like oh he's definitely picking up the player option but if we're thinking about it on the criteria that i'm the one who laid out at the beginning of the podcast he absolutely qualifies because that he could have gotten a significant contract with the spurs or theoretically somebody else this offseason and i think we're all pretty sure that's not going to happen now and it's probably not going to happen next year either so that is a that is a pretty significant drop okay you're number four so do we want to switch made some money made some money i originally had danilo gallinari in a stronger position on my list but part of it is just the market dynamics that i'm what the biggest thing that gallo did was stay pretty healthy and he was again a very good player an important part of this vastly successful oklahoma city thunder regular season and what so i originally think i had him second and then what i realized was well i don't know who's going to be falling all over themselves to pay him now that wasn't going to before he'll he'll draw some interest like i wonder which of the cap space teams are going to be there theoretically okc could sign and trade him if if there were the right circumstance that gets really hard or just bring him back there as well exactly and that might be the team that that might be the team that changed their their positioning i mean we both thought gallo was almost a lock to be traded i had him as the second most likely player to be traded in the entire league behind nene and that didn't happen and he's an important part of that so i think gallo he did he he shored up his kind of shored up his downside which as i got into with hardaway jr is an important thing you know that 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 getting that base support also sort of what jeff teague didn't do and so i i wanted to have him there and i mean gallo staying healthy playing well and he's he's a damn good basketball player so i thought i thought he's he he really did make himself something this year yeah, he did not feature on my list, but was prominent in the honorable mentions. Again, for some of the things you talked about, I think the biggest thing that he proved this year was he could stay healthy once more. Yeah. My number four is I, I, another guy that I'm guessing is going to be on your list, and that's Christian Wood. Oh, yes. He is on my list. <laughs> what what number did you have him at? One. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, he, uh, I mean, if you had him at number one, I'll cede the floor to you then uh, to talk about him. Christian Wood got waived twice on a minimum contract and now is i mean we don't know exactly what his money is going to be but i mean he was looking if if he if we had to project where his money was going to go for 2020 a year ago or six months ago wherever we're going to go that was going to be you know in the minimum range maybe if things went well taxpayer mid-level or something like that it's possible that he ends up not getting more you know he could be one of those players especially with the issues in his past that gets less than his performance this year would indicate also remember he did a lot of it against backups and everything else but it wouldn't shock me at all if a team like charlotte saw him as the starter and they have some cap space to work with and paid him and so going going from the minimum especially when you take into account this is something i did for in certain circumstances going from you know being on the fringes to being a rock solid player when you've never made any money before is really important too and i I think he's going to get paid so i think that the difference between you know like a minimum or near minimum to what he gets even if that's not the 10 million that i think it might be is huge 
Yeah, you'd imagine that at a minimum, kind of the Avicii Zubac, Thomas Bryant type of contract would be there for him. Seems like it would have to be. And and Zubac, that's an interesting question of whether he's better or or Zubac is better. I think he's clearly better than Thomas Bryant to me. But and those guys are also restricted free agents, so uh, Wood will be unrestricted uh, with a a very low cap hold. Seems like Detroit is planning to bring him back. Yeah, unrestricted. I think age twenty four, twenty four, twenty five. Yeah. Yeah, one of the younger unrestricted free agents uh, that you're going to see, who's at least, you know, unless they're unrestricted because they got like their rookie option declined or they got waived or something. Someone who's actually, Derek Jones Jr. actually falls into this category too. He was an honorable mention for me. Same. Um, Who was your number four? My number four was Gallo. So let's move to the, um, let's move to the lost section. And this, I, I had trouble. I guess the theory on this is very similar to, to DeMar DeRozan, so I'm guessing you'll have him in a prominent place on your list, and that's Andre Drummond. Yeah. Drummond, in a different world, would be declining his player option and signing a lucrative deal either with Bird Rights or with one of these other teams. I mean, we thought for a significant period of the year that might be with the Atlanta Hawks. It is most certainly not going to be with the Atlanta Hawks. And so, yeah, I, I think if I structured my list, it, it, I'm interested in where you have Drummond, but the idea that, you know, like the, con- the, the contract that he was, the money, guaranteed money that he could have gotten this summer, like when we were doing this out, I was like, maybe he's going like, to, you and I thought he were, we, we were lower on him than most people, but it's like, oh yeah, he could absolutely get 18 to $24 million per season. And I don't know if that contract's even out there, but I mean, the fact that he's, it seems like almost definitely he's going to pick up his player option unless Cleveland does something silly here is huge. Yeah, getting to the point where he was a essentially salary dumped for next year and now cleveland did take him on at that salary and so there's at least an argument that you know th- th- that was such an interesting challenge trade between the pistons and the Cavs in division by the way did you have him on your list i'm assuming you did i i did yeah i had him all the way up uh, at number two actually well and drummond also one of the other factors that i didn't consider as much for 2020 guys is that but it is still worth mentioning is that now by picking up that option he adds a lot more variance to this because if he has an unimpressive year if he can't fix Cleveland's defense assuming he picks up that option then it becomes a real issue of why why should we pay this guy why you know like what makes him special and that relates to another guy who's on the list for me yeah my number four was Dario Saric he was traded as a centerpiece of that trade remember the Suns moved down from six to 11 and picked him up presumably because they thought he would be a long-term answer at power forward I always had some questions about his fit with DeAndre Ayton a relatively defenseless front court but really just Saric hasn't been much of a game changer for the Suns and whether they wanted to go more with Kelly Oubre at the four. He's had times where he's been out of the starting lineup, not playing in crunch time. And the Suns now are looking at having cap space. Sharish's cap hold sits at a little over 10 million. They've got 20 million in space. It seems likely to me that they wouldn't want to use that space on him and have it tied up. And he just hasn't done enough there to show himself to be a fixture at power forward and so uh for them going forward i think they are of the belief perhaps rightfully so that they can do better with that money on the free agent market and they'll be one of the few teams that has space that's also really trying to improve for next year you would imagine that usually seems to be the ethos for them so yeah and i'm not sure that sharich has really been you know that much worse than necessarily would have been expected it's just i think it's kind of become clear that he you know he hasn't really improved that much and he's not doing much other than just shooting threes and maybe a little bit of passing and posting up offensively and then defensively he's uh below average also getting 
eclipsed by, you know, Kelly Oubre and some of the other guys potentially in the rotation, that loses you money too because it changes the perception and it lowers your priority within the organization. And so all of those, it's not necessarily always about deserved with this. It's who made and lost the most money. And I agree with you that I had him in the honorable mentions, but that's a totally reasonable selection. Okay, number three player for you, Danny, who has made some money. I said a bit ago that I had Fred Van Fleet number two. I moved him to number three because I realized that my number three has probably made himself more money. So we already talked about Van Vliet. I will see the floor to you. Marcus Morris. Oh, that's a good call. He's my mine. number six. But yeah, that's... Yeah, and it's interesting to say that because Morris was supposedly offered three years, $40 million from the Clippers, turned that down, ended up having to go for the mid-level exception to San Antonio, then was able to opt out of that because the Knicks had uh, Reggie opt Bullock. Out, opt out is very polite term, terminology from for him. Yes, yes. Uh, renege on his commitment, shall we say. And Reggie Bullock fails his physical, so the Knicks all of a sudden have $15 million to spend. He signs a one-year $15 million deal with them, and it's looking like that's probably going to pay off for him. And so while you might say, oh, you know, he didn't have any integrity, he broke his commitment, blah, blah, it worked out for him because he he had the best year of his career. He proved, I think, to a lot of people that he really is this high 30s, close to 40% three-point shooter, was able to do more offensively, still a solid defensive player, and he got to a place in terms of the Clippers where they have full bird rights on him. They don't have any well, way to replace him if he leaves. A clarification, they have sufficient bird rights on him. They do not have yeah, full Yeah, uh, sorry, bird, sorry. Yeah, have- I, I misspoke there. Yeah, Thank and- you. That's, but, but they could pay him up to $18 million to start. And they have a billionaire owner who might... Might be willing to do that and i mean if we don't know where things are going from here but marcus morris could be in the closing five on the on a finals team or even the championship team and that is massive and yeah what, whatever and, and having that kind of visibility you'd imagine that he would certainly have uh contracts offers going forward from other places maybe maybe the only way he's going to get more than the mid-level would be with the clippers just due to the fact that there aren't that many slots above the mid-level among good teams yeah and that's part of why i didn't have him in here but he's a i mean i really considered it because it just depends on what the clippers are willing to offer and i mean remember the knicks were it seemed like the knicks were wanted him back too at one point that was a part of the friction between front office and ownership anyone who's seen our youtube videos knows that i don't wear formal stuff all the time so when it's time to dress up rather than dress down i highly recommend inochino they were the official outfitter of my wedding i got my tux from there all my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well i felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly because when you go somewhere else you're not going to get something that's made for you so why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a show room rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you and not only does indochino have the suits that made them famous but now they've got everything blazers pants women's wear outerwear designed and made for you hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from european wools linen cottons tons of colors tons of patterns you can customize things like the lapel the vents the pockets and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. Portably. 
Okay, so uh, you mentioned that you had Morris at six. Your number three was already taken. So, uh, so let's, let's have you do on here, though. Who is your number two? Okay, we'll stay on that side. Sure. Um, yeah. My number two is Davis Bertans. Davis Bertans came into this season, you know, he looked like, you know, he played last year on the Spurs, played 21, 21 minutes a game. And, we, you know, we liked some of what he could do. And part of why Bertans, why I moved him from three to two is, again, deserve doesn't have as much to do with it. And it seems like the Wizards are going to be willing to pay him. That sort of a circumstance, I don't think would have been there if he had stayed, if he had stayed or if the season had gone, had gone more poorly. But Bertans had a completely ridiculous year. He took 14 three-pointers per 100% possessions and made 42 percent of those that percentage is actually slightly lower than last year on san antonio but the frequency is way up played more minutes had an important role with the wizards who like those bench units that were doing really well ended up closing some games for them and whether whether he ends up getting heinously overpaid or not i think he made himself a lot of money in a time when i mean you could have easily seen him kind of fall into the into the morass in another year yeah and you would imagine that for him he's gonna be only 27 so very good age and you would think that a four-year deal uh, in the mid-teens at a minimum is going to be available for him especially now that the Wizards didn't trade him I'm sure he would have been in demand the fact that they didn't trade him they now have some sunk costs uh, if Ted Leonsis's history is to be believed there will be a playoffs or bust mentality next year well, and, uh, and remember yeah. that the the person who traded for Bertans is still the GM because Shepard got yes. the, got the full-time job and that's always something to look for is when the person the person who acquired that player knowing free agency was coming and they had a pretty good year that is a very good sign for that player getting overpaid okay what about uh the, he was my number two as well oh nice who else did you have in terms of players who have cost themselves some money my number three was hassan whiteside Whiteside's a weird one because he still put up the counting stats again, but it just feels like the market for him is evaporating. I, I had this challenge when I was doing the big men write up for the athletic, and I was just like, wow, how much money is he going to get? Where is that going to go? And it's not going to be in Portland. So that's that's a real challenge. I mean, as you know, Nurkic was ready to come back before the hiatus, and they'll have bird rights, but that's not how Portland's going to want to use that for another center, especially considering they already have Zach Collins and they have some other ways to, to do that. So Atlanta losing it you know and and really white side you know atlanta I, losing it what does that mean losing their ability to losing their slot for a center sorry i should declare oh that. yeah like they're, they're they double lost it because they they used uh capella and deadman which i support but you know that that's the way they did it so maybe like charlotte is an option or, or some or but other than that he's probably going for the mid-level or less than that and Whiteside will be one of these first test cases of whether the you know kind of like a precursor likely to drummond of whether the counting stats and all that type of stuff really do matter but i think i don't think there's going to be a market for him i didn't have him on my list because i never thought there was a market for him i in my opinion i think if anything he's improved his market he stayed healthy all year he's been an adequate starting center he hasn't really had any attitude problems like came out in miami so i mean i just thought he, i i thought very i thought his chances of getting any kind of a significant contract you know much above six or seven million dollars for a couple of years before this season were pretty limited and so yeah i guess we that was where our disagreement was i guess so for me i'll go with dj augustin he's my number two augustin yeah augustin was last year a starting point guard on a playoff team we ridiculed his contract in the summer of 2016 as it turned out one of the better contracts that was signed there a four-year deal about seven million dollars a year and we always joked how he was uh, such an on-again, off-again player in terms of every other year. 
but 2019 was actually an odd year usually he was good in the even years uh and he was a key component to what they're doing but he was always a regression candidate he's going to be 32 now and lost his starting job i think if he had started all year the magic were solidly on pace for the playoffs maybe things could have looked a little bit better for him and maybe he could have been looking at a contract around the mid-level exception somewhere. But now I think he's clearly going to just be shunted into a backup role. And at age 32, you might say, hey, it wasn't necessarily obvious that he was going to get another contract anyway. So maybe we're overstating where he was at the start of the year. But losing his starting job was not good for him. Right. Yeah, I echo all that. And that's why I had him number two. So who did you have number two? I had Drummond there, okay. who we talked about already. Uh, so then, so I'll, I guess so. I'll, yeah, I'll share ahead. my I'll share my number one. And this, yeah, I, I was kind of surprised by myself, but then when I really worked through it, I'm like, yeah, I think that's the, I think it's a reasonable one by the criteria, and that's Jeremy Grant. And so huh. Jer- Jeremy Grant had things lined up again. We're th- I'm thinking about expected contract difference. He had things lined up to establish himself theoretically as the power forward of the present and the future in Denver. And remember that the Nuggets are notoriously reluctant to pay the luxury tax. And it might be that it's one slot for two guys. It might not be. But I don't think Grant, you know, I thought he had, this is an opportunity-based thing. He had the opportunity to establish himself. I thought that if he said, okay, if he proved I'm the guy, I can play next to Jokic, that's going to work. Then Denver would have really rolled out the red carpet for him. There would have been other other things, even though he's a power forward. They're, you know, it's kind of interesting. And some people think more of a shooting than I do. But I, and I, he's going to opt. He's going to opt out. It's the right decision, and it wouldn't surprise me if Denver paid him. But I don't think that there's that he's like that. There's this robust market for him, or this appetite with the Nuggets if somebody comes with something a little bit strong to pay him, especially because I thought Millsap was way better. I'm not a thousand percent sure he's going to opt out. I, I agree with you. I think he probably will. That's one where we'll have to really sit down and think about what the market at that position looks like. But the other thing other than, and, and you know, I don't think he's been bad. The one thing is that, you know, his shooting really hasn't come along as much this year. There was a, he was, had shot it decently at times on lower volume in Oklahoma City. He'd gotten a little bit more of a green light in Denver. It hasn't necessarily gone in for him. Uh, those bench units uh, have underperformed a little bit in Denver compared to where they might have been in previous times. And then the other thing that's out of his control, but it probably caused him to lose money is Paul Millsap has played well enough still that he could be an option to be brought back and then michael porter jr has emerged into being a big part of the nuggets future now at least uh, as they say i think they're uh, everybody seems just a little bit too high on him right now but nonetheless uh, he's a, a valuable player and then you look at the nuggets they're gonna need a backup center they need other than porter jr they don't have much at power forward and we'll see how they finish this year out as well but they've got about 35 million dollars to work with below the luxury tax and maybe even less than that we'll see where the cap comes in too there's another thing where he could get squeezed there so it'll be interesting to see whether they prioritize say hey you know what? we'll bring back Millsap. we're going to play him 23 minutes a game in the regular season we'll give the rest of the time to porter and jeremy grant we, we can't really fit you long term into our salary structure maybe there's a thought that he could move into more of a backup center role and they'll let Plumley go but you know you'd think they probably want to bring back Plumley. they seem to really value him as well and who knows what the price is there for him so yeah i could very easily see him being the odd man out now they did trade that first rounder for him so maybe there's a a higher valuing of him but yeah he he hasn't proven himself to be that long-term long-term cornerstone that i think they envisioned when they gave up that first rounder to bring him in who was your number one mike conley 
Yeah, that, that that's reasonable. I mean, for me, it was the the same thing we talked about before. He's just more likely to pick up the ETO. So yeah, I mean, thirty four million there, and and that was probably more likely than not to happen. So maybe I shouldn't have him as high. Although when you look at the big numbers involved, that's part of why I, I moved in that direction for him. Conley, you would have thought, hey, maybe he opts out of that. He proves that he's part of the long-term future for the Jazz he's going to be 32 this offseason so you would have thought hey maybe at 32 rather than 33 he wants to opt out he could sign on for something that's you know 20 million a year for the next four years or 25 million a year for three years something like that to where it's really working in Utah or he could play so well that he might have been in demand elsewhere but neither of those scenarios has happened and so it looks like he'll just be 34 million next year and then see what comes after that but you know will he have a starting position available after that the hope was he could play well enough to capitalize on still playing at a really high level at 32 instead of having to go out there again at 33 yeah totally totally reasonable i actually had him at the towards the top of my 2021 list but yeah the rationale you used is reasonable he could have opted out the analogy there is probably what harrison barnes did where you take a lower annual value but you lock it in for a lot longer time yeah and that certainly could have happened and if he had been a a linchpin in utah and they had this success like they absolutely could have and you know they still could depending on where things go from here have a successful run but he hasn't he hasn't been at the forefront a lot of the best things that have happened for the jazz this year okay who is your number one in terms of who's made themselves some money christian wood and we already talked about him a fair amount so i will give the floor to you so i am shocked that you didn't even have this person on your list brandon ingram no brainer max contract i think he was going to get a max contract anyway that was that was my logic was that he was he went from being a shaky max to being a firm max but that he didn't make him that much money you think he was going to get based on what he'd done so far okay so number one he had this uh dvt issue oh that's true i wasn't thinking about the d i was thinking of it more in training camp when it looked like that was solved yeah that's totally fair i was thinking of it more like after that was resolved i thought somebody like the hawks was going to give it to him yeah, and we didn't know that he was going to shoot. I mean, to me, he fits in so many more places now because he can shoot. We had no idea that he could shoot like this at the start of the season. Maybe I'm underrating the that there are teams that had him in much higher regard than this before the season, but especially considering the injury issues. Also, we, didn't, we thought that Zion was going to be the main guy, and his production did fall off a little bit. Ingram's once Zion came back and Zion became featured a little bit more, but Ingram got a chance to be the number one option basically on this Pelicans team and average 26 points a game and almost 60 percent true shooting I, th- that would to me if he was going to have a no-brainer max then they would have just offered it to him uh, or they would have offered him something that was close enough to that where he would have signed the extension i think I, I think he really has made himself a lot of me I, I think it was he was looking at maybe you know something in the 20 to 25 million dollars a year range and now the, the max at least as of the projections right now and he might even get the five-year max from them, so so he could get another year as well. Yeah, I, I think what was in the back of my mind was his fellow former Lakers number two overall pick, D'Angelo Russell, who, yeah, Russell had that all-star ostensible season beforehand, but I just thought that Ingram, you know, he had the pedigree. People, A lot of people liked him more than we did. He was an important part of the AD trade. Um but you're right. The DVT thing is what I hadn't accounted for as much. I mean, it's amazing to think about how much that changed. And we were all very scared about that, as we should have been, because it's yeah. a DVT. I mean, I mean, the party line was 
that it was a muscular skeletal thing that was taken care of with the surgery that it wasn't a pulmonary issue and that was the party line you don't know whether people being are, are know that for sure or not but it seems like uh the fact that he hasn't had any recurrence so i mean i think he can get five years 167 million from the pelicans yeah I, 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 and, he's he's reasonable yeah. he was one that i considered and actually i think i had him fourth originally and then moved him down just on the idea that the raw money made i thought was a little bit lower but it's yeah it's disagreement on where it was but i think yeah you're right i should have had him in because of the dvt we didn't set exactly where the parameters were i'll do a few honorable mentions for each of these well um, here let's uh let's take a quick break first before we do that reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem uh, reese's you did it you stumped this charming devil Okay, so you're before the break, you're going to get to your honorable mentions. Two restricted free agents. Uh, Ingram was obviously one of my one of my honorable mentions as well. Um, DeAnthony Melton and Malik Beasley. I wonder where the market is going to end up with them, but I thought both guys, Beasley during the Minnesota tenure, and then DeAnthony Melton, barely the whole season with the Grizzlies, really did help themselves. But restricted free agents, it's always hard to see whether it materializes or not. You know, like it, it might end up being that they get squeezed by the process. This is a terrible year in terms of cap space. So that's why they weren't in my they weren't really seriously considered for my top five, but I do think that they really helped themselves. Yeah, I mean Melton was hadn't really established his career. You know, he, he could have easily just been looking at a pretty fringy contract. Now I think he, he's shown enough to where Memphis will want to bring him back on, on a reasonable long term deal as a restricted free agent. And Beasley, I didn't put him in there because he got offered that three for thirty before the season, and he may end up beating that. I mean, I, if I had to guess, I think he will end up beating thirty million guaranteed with the Wolves. But if he hadn't gotten traded to them, he, I, I don't know that his overall performance this year hasn't been great. He's had, what, seven games or whatever it is with the Wolves, 10 games, something, something like that. Something like that, yeah. Um, and, and he's looked pretty good during the, during that time. And he does fit into the idea of having shooting around Carl Anthony Towns, having another playmaker in addition to D'Angelo Russell. Um but I didn't think he made himself substantially more money with his play necessarily than what was offered before the season. Um, we'll see though. Maybe the Wolves really break the break the bank for him. But I was I wasn't sure about that. That's why I didn't include him. I had a couple of others here: uh, Alec Burks and Glenn Robinson the third. Absolutely. Um, you know, we'll see. Glenn, Rob- the, some of these three D guys that we like, they don't end up working out, and maybe those guys just uh, end up getting into the playoffs of Philly and not really doing that much, and uh, their value ends up being lower than I expect. But those guys were on just straight up vet minimum contracts. You would think that both of them would be able to exceed that based on, on how they've played so far this season. There was a point early in the year that I think Aaron Baines looked like a lock for the top five on this because he was doing well, fit in with yeah. with the Suns, but as he as he was less healthy and everything else that happened he fell out of the top five but i still think he helped him remember baines this was his age 33 season and i think that he's you know i don't think anybody's going to give him starter money but i think a team could see him as a part of their solution at the center position well particularly his development as a three-point bomber that's going to enable him to continue to stay relevant fit in more lineups i don't know if he's going to get a substantial raise off of that room exception amount here's 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 a pretty incredible stat so baines his it went in 2017-18 when he was on the Celtics the first year there he took 0.73s per 100 possessions that was his career high he made 14% of them went from 0.7 to 3.6 making 34% of them to 8.5 making 35% of them that that's incredible 
Yeah, I mean, Philly fans, there was a reason they were so shocked when he started uncorking these threes in the 2018 playoffs against them. So I don't think he's going to get a huge raise, but I do think that he maintained his value, which at age 33, you wouldn't necessarily have expected. I had a couple guys. Chris, I want, yeah, I had a couple yeah, guys yeah, I wanted ahead, to ask you about that. Like, you know, they were in this okay. kind of like. Uh, let's just start with Derek Favors and Wes Matthews. Um, yeah, Favors. I think he's kind of right on track. You know, he, he's. I mean, I'm, he's probably looking at mid-level exception money just due to the state of the market. I think he's a, a little bit better than that. Uh, we'll see whether he's able to stay healthy the rest of the year. He had those problems early on. There's also the, the passing of his mother that he was dealing with. Um, yeah, I thought he was kind of been in line with what my expectations were for this season. And then, so I, I didn't I didn't feature him prominently. Yeah, I was I was a little torn on him, and I was torn on Wes Matthews. Matthews, who took less than market value to go to Milwaukee and started and did very well in yeah. that. But I wonder I, where it goes from here. Yeah, he seems like if he wanted to, you know, maybe he could get something along the lines like what Garrett Temple got last year. Yeah, something like I that. You fair. know, four million, five million. Um, we'll see though. Once guys take minimum contracts, there's a school of thought that once you're on a minimum contract, it's hard to get off of it, that, especially, especially when. It wasn't a make good, you know, like it, it, it's, it, sometimes there is that, that level that gets really hard. It wasn't, you know, like, oh, he was hurt and he did something and then he came back. Like he, I mean, he was in demand as a buyout guy last year. A few more that I can mention on the positive side, Langston Galloway has had a really nice season in Detroit with his shooting. I think there'll be some demand for him as a backup guard, which wasn't necessarily going to be the case before. And he's kind of yo-yoed around. It seems like he's found a nice partnership with uh, Dwayne Casey there. Serge Ibaka continued to play really well, looking like he's maintained his level, which was going to be a question for him. And so now I I think clearly... Again, you kind of say, how much money has he made when the center market, is there going to be much above the mid-level exception? And it's tough to say. I mean, maybe he just gets brought back in Toronto for another year at relatively bigger money than he could get on the mid-level. But to me, just with his play, he's uh, he's answered some questions and showed that he hasn't had a major decline. Uh, and feel free to break in on any of these uh, yeah. if you want to, Danny. Um, Tristan Thompson was awful last year. He actually was pretty good for Cleveland this year. I think he'll have some demand for a contender. Not sure what the price is going to yeah, be. That, but, that was the reason you know, I didn't was, have him on. But yeah, he, he definitely yeah. improved his stock. But but he was looking like he could be on course for like being a vet minimum guy. Uh, so I had I had one for you. Um, and this there are a couple that I had kind of in this other group where it's like their leverage got better in some ways more so than they made themselves. But Contavious Caldwell Pope. I mean, having the having the sufficient bird rights from the Lakers, having the clutch sports leverage, I, I could imagine him getting paid and the Lakers being so successful. Yeah, I, I think that's quite possible. Another Laker, Dwight Howard, yes. who was on a non guaranteed veterans minimum i think he's clearly shown that at least solid backup center money in the four to five million dollar a year range is something that he's earned and you would think maybe he'd get brought back to the lakers they don't have any bird rights on him that could actually be a complicating factor for yeah and it's not like you can do it's not like you can do the oh we'll pay you one more year and then we'll have bird rights to do that like dwight howard's too old to to take that unless he just wants to be there anyway which is possible yeah but i mean as a 34 year it looked like his career could be remember he missed all last year due to back surgery right yeah, I had, I had him on my list too. Um, another one yeah, of those. And he's been a feel good story, no attitude problems. Yeah, and I mean, I had in the similar camp, though not as firm as Dwight Howard, Carmelo Anthony went from being possibly not in the league to in the league in within the league year, which is pretty impressive. And another feel good story. Um, my other situ, another situational one for me is Bogdan Bogdanovich. You know, he had, a, he, I thought he had a reasonable enough year, but he got a lot of leverage based on how Sacramento did the rest of their summer or rest of their season. You know, moving off of Deadman and some of the other stuff, it seems like that was done 
Khan to open up money for him so he will command that money all right well why don't we call it here actually then and we'll save your 2021 idea for a little bit later not like we're not gonna have time to to get to all of these (laughs) another note i tweeted out an idea on twitter we had solicited here on the show but uh already gotten 250 replies to this question of we wanted to solicit some show ideas and what we're gonna do is our director of basketball research ben dull is gonna put together all of those suggestions danny and i are gonna pick either the eight or 16 best ones and we're actually gonna do a twitter poll tournament to allow you guys to pick which episodes you would like us to do and then danny and i will do the research on them and you'll get to see exactly what you want so feel free to reply to that that tweet which is not tweeting as much these days because there aren't live games to tweet and then keep your eyes peeled to vote in that poll we'll probably do one every day so looking forward to interacting with you all then we put the twitch stuff on hiatus right now try to bring that back pretty soon keep keep an eye on twitter for that you can watch our show live comment on it we'll take some comments afterwards but uh with the the new coronavirus segments uh, that's kind of been the focus as of now and we're gonna bring in ben in less than three seconds here what's up man i missed you yesterday i i gotta say it took me like 60 minutes to record 30 minutes worth of stuff uh it, it is definitely helpful to have someone to kind of bounce these ideas off of a little bit here well i mean you were fantastic so <laughs> it was i mean it is really i, I know you do i know uh, on your podcast a lot of solo episodes i was like man i mean it, i was a little more stressed obviously because you just uh, i'm terrified of getting anything wrong I, when it's this weighty of a matter right so right. i was like really had to choose my words carefully but uh it's good to have you back because uh this way if we mess anything up it's it's only 50 percent my fault <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well that's what i'm here for diffusion of responsibility so here's what we want to talk about today try to go a little bit more forward thinking now and try to figure out a way out of this mess and a lot of this is going to be opinion. It's going to be informed by some of the reports that are out there, both in terms of the news, what countries are already doing. Some of it is based on recommendations that we've seen floating around, news articles from experts. And some of it is just stuff that we came up with on our own that we think would be great measures for our country, but obviously is something that other countries could do as well. Um, I think a lot of this is going to be informed by historical perspective of what this nation has done and be capable of doing in wartime. And I think a lot of it to me starts off with that kind of a mentality. Yeah, I've I've been there for a while, um, especially just as I mean, I'm not a professional historian, but um, certainly have always been interested in post-war or sort of that period, World War One to World War Two. And to your point, uh, for those who aren't super familiar with it, just the the economic mobilization of the entire country, um, taking advantage of our, not just our vast sort of pool of national resources, but the sheer number of people we have, um, our strength in science and technology historically, and the ability to mobilize that uh, was really not something just just turned the war, but um, had huge ramifications for society coming out of that period in the 40s and 50s. And so, yes, given the severity of the situation, we've talked about it before, this probably is the most significant event since then at a global level. Um, I, too, think calling on those resources pooling us all together right now um, is certainly something that, at least for me, uh, you know, creates a little optimism. 
Well, and the phrase that was used back in World War II was the arsenal of democracy. And that is sort of the thought that I think we need to be adopting here and you think of all of the things that we did back in world war ii whether it was inducting people into the military or nurses or a a big change in the population of the country where we don't want necessarily as much movement but a lot of people changed their jobs and i I think it's also worth noting that before world war ii was basically the worst economic slowdown the great depression in our nation's history you had basically Two-thirds of industrial capacity was idle for almost a 10-year period. You had up to 25% unemployment. And unintentionally, World War II got us out of that. And so we're hopeful that this isn't going to be a four-year-long process for the U.S., six years like it was in other countries. But the thought is you've got a lot of people now who are unemployed, and we can put them to work doing things to fight this virus. And another thing I, I thought too is that maybe some people are like, well, you know, this is going to be gone pretty soon anyway, right? Like we, there'll be a vaccine or, you know, we'll do our social distancing and then it'll be over. That wasn't the mentality that we had when we were fighting foreign enemies to say, oh, well, you know, things are going pretty well in the war. Let's just let up now. You know, I mean, that that's, that's not the mentality that we had then. And also the other thing is this is a global issue. And that's when I started bringing up that arsenal of democracy type of mentality. Okay, that's great. We get the virus under control here. What about Africa? What about Indonesia? What about India? What about all these places where we're not, we're reliant on a global economy, as we'll talk about more here. And so if we can get this under control here, then maybe we can help other countries get it under control as well and truly be global. Again, this is my, my hope not necessarily what I think will be done, uh, but this is, is just a, as a general outline here, we'll get a lot more specific about it. Any thoughts uh, on that idea at all? I mean, just in the sense that it's an extension of the same thing that happened with World War II, where afterwards you had this you know, United Nations leading countries kind of concept, and a lot of the resources and infrastructure were put in place were able to, at least in theory, I don't know how often they did it successfully, but in theory, uh, help with humanitarian issues in other parts of the world. Because this is one of those things that, while I think many, many sort of... Um, human rights or health issues or even wartime issues do affect us indirectly, do affect, you know, if you're a country in Europe, um, something on the other side of the world could def- could affect you indirectly. This at least has the immediacy of being able to say, oh, that does affect us right now. And we can see how it affects us immediately. Um, and so maybe that will be a, a thrust if we can start to push forward with some of these measures, whether it's in the US or collectively with uh, Europe and uh, countries in Southeast Asia and things like that, uh, leveraging this technology and leveraging these ideas to then, yes, take care of. I mean, India is something that we've already talked about a few times, just some places in the world that don't have those resources. It's in all of our best interests um, to move forward in that direction. Yeah. And it's probably beyond the scope of this podcast to know what form of assistance globally that could take. And obviously we are so far away from having this under control in our own country. But I I think just in a general sense, and we're starting to see this just in bits and pieces, even around the world, there's a, a Reuters story today that in Sweden, employees who've been furloughed from SAS Airlines are being retrained to do 
health work and they already have some training in that and so you think about it right like when we we need so much more in terms of testing capacity in terms of people who can trace contacts once we do get this under control enough that it's not just community transmission you have no idea where you got this thing uh and or maybe it's uh, people who are going to build structures or, or whatever it is. I mean, if you can train a soldier in, I, I don't know how long basic training took back in World War II. I mean, it was in the like, you know, two month, three month type of range. You can train someone to be a soldier. You can absolutely train someone to do a lot of these or, or basic health work as well to free up, you know, to conduct tests, say if, if that's needed or initial triage uh, just related to this virus to free up the really trained healthcare workers to do more specific work uh i think that's something that could be done to i mean there are so many things that we're going to need we'll, we'll get into more of those but it is possible with a massive effort to train people and it's not like we don't have the manpower right like we three million people just filed for unemployment last week yeah and i i do want to interject something that i think is probably uh, beyond the scope of what we're trying to do here in terms of like the philosophical ramifications but the one difference to me that really stands out is something we're already seeing economically which is 80 years ago manpower we had less technology so sort of your your mechanical torque of your labor force was more of a one to, we need another guy we need another guy we need another guy here some of the things we're going to talk about today may be technological solutions they may come from the private sector and then they scale and so it's harder to enlist each man in that endeavor uh, and i think this just like i said probably way outside the scope of what we're trying to do but just something to consider that as those solutions come in even if we repurpose resources and re repurpose individuals uh it may not necessarily be the kind of thing where it's like oh We've got 5 million people out of work. We can take 95% of them and put them on the cause. It may be that only a small percentage of them go on the cause. And so that's kind of a new thing that we may have to think about societally. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, there, there's probably not, uh, certainly as far as making things like ventilators, protective equipment. But yeah, I mean, that that ultimately is going to be a, a small segment of the economy. You know, we're not going to be building a bunch of B-17s necessarily. Um so, yeah, I, I think this would be a more scaled down version of that because of some of the things that you're talking about. But certainly it seems like when you're looking at, say, county health departments being responsible for tracing, like they didn't have the manpower to do that back when we had like 250 cases in the whole country. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so so let's 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 get to that. You know, yeah. that's sort yeah. of uh, the the initial because we're still underwater here, basically, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Enough of the the overall philosophy. I think just as a general mentality, I think ha having this idea would help. So I think this the thing that stuck out the most to me is I think we just need a plan that's public that everyone knows. And to me, that starts with we need to find a benchmark that everyone in our society can be shooting towards as far as when physical distancing has worked enough. And I don't know what that would be. That is something that experts would probably need to weigh in on a little bit more. But you know, I certainly would want it to be more on the conservative side to where we really know, all right, if we hit this, we feel very, very confident that things will be under control with the capacity that we've ramped up in the other areas that we need to deal with this so whether that's you know i don't know whether it's overall cases in the u.s or less than a thousand per week for two weeks or we don't have any more community transmission i think that's an important benchmark as well when it, so you actually can begin now tracing and, and isolating people um 
but I think having that as a goal as a nation to say okay hey it's not just all right we're doing this for an amount of time it's we have this benchmark that we have to work towards as a society to win this war and we can't reopen until we get there the American Enterprise Institute uh, a couple days ago has published sort of a uh a guideline or a possible plan like this. And I think to your point, we're actually going to see multiple benchmarks, right? We're going to have, they, they call them triggers. We're going to have different sort of trigger states, scenarios where we say, okay, uh, if we have X number of cases in a community, or if we have the rate of growth or decrease in cases or things like that, these are going to trigger new states. Again, we've talked about this before. It's not an all or one thing. I think when you start to get into the solutioning, and we'll, we'll lay them out in a second, sort of some of these ideas, you, you see things like, okay, we can slowly relax. We can go from no one goes outside to smaller gatherings of you know 20 or 30 people might be okay once, once we reach that trigger. What those specific triggers are, uh, I don't know. We can use some of the experts' numbers as we go through this, but it's not even just going to be one benchmark to work toward, right, Nate? It's just going to be like, th this is our next step. This is our next step. And each step gets us sort of uh, further out of the, of the drowning phase. Now, one thing that the AEI report suggested was that individual states can move to a gradual reopening, what they call phase two, uh, when they are able to safely diagnose, treat, and isolate COVID-19 cases in their contacts. I still worry a little bit about overly localized solutions because if you don't have it under control in most places or you don't have some sort of travel restrictions, then you can have people moving around it and uh, setting off those sparks that we've talked about in previous episodes. Yep. No, I, I, yeah, I skimmed through um, their guidelines and, um, you know, it's it's certainly not dogma. It's just it's someone that at least has put forth something. And some of them also looked a little too uh, perhaps loose to me. You know, like they say, um, if if hospitals in your state are no longer able to safely treat all patients, then you have to move from phase two back to phase one. I mean, that that seems like the kind of thing that would be a little too late to me once your hospitals are overflowing. Um, so, yeah, there there are certainly um targets that have gray areas right now. But the point is, if we can move toward certain targets that seem reasonable based on evidence, based on scientific recommendation, um, and so on, then we can start to come out of this. So there's a number of problems here that stuck out to me, and I'm sure more will come up as we're thinking about this. But uh, these are some of the major issues that I see that are preventing us, uh, well, number one, preventing us from reopening, but two, uh, economic issues uh, that may linger. I mean, the biggest one, obviously, right now is the lack of health system and capacity. And so respirators, PPE, those are the, the two biggest bottlenecks in terms of actual supplies and Again, I think the wartime footing to get enough respirators, get enough PPE, and hey, guess what? Uh, you might say that some of these people, some of these firms are like, well, if I build up all, all these respirators and then this is over, you know, I, I've made all these investments. Well, number one, the rest of the world is probably going to need respirators too. Uh, and number two, having enough of these going forward is going to be very important, right? I mean, we're, we have all these things in our society where we've prepared for wars, right? We've got the Selective Service Act. There's a presumably plans like, okay, if we get involved in a big war, here's how we mobilize everything. I mean, we, I think we'll just ultimately, you're going to need that going forward for 
potential public health crises. Um, so ramping up industrial capacity, I mean, that, that's something that with regard to those items, testing is another one, obviously, just the capacity to perform more tests, perform tests more quickly. I mean, that's that's all stuff that I think everyone recognizes needs to be done here. Um, let's let's stay yeah. on that, just that uh, PPE scaling concept. For instance, France is now, uh, they've ordered a billion a billion, not a million, a billion masks from China. But one thing France has done which in the spirit of this discussion we're having is they said, look, this is an international issue. We are no longer going to be able to outsource this issue uh, of producing things like masks. So um, French, French President Macron said the, the uh, consumption of face masks has now gone from 4 million per week in France to more than 40 million. This is per France 24. Um, so that's a good sign, right? In theory, people are wearing more masks, a 10-fold increase. But what they're basically saying is we need to produce these things. We had 140 million masks before this started in France. But as we commented the other day, that's basically nothing. You burn through those like they're nothing. So he is advocating that we need to, or they in France need to now start domestically producing, quote unquote, billions and billions of masks. Yeah, and we're going to be in the same boat. And I think there's yep. uh, once more, there's going to need to be, uh, you're not going to be investing in this capacity and then, oh yeah, it goes away. I mean, I think it, it's, this is made very clear that a lot of these supply chains, uh, we need to have a, a domestic option for this. I mean, I think uh, there are a lot of supply chains that, you know, for defense uh, that the thought is we need to have them here. And I think we need to feel the same way about a, a global health issue like this going forward. So I, I think that, you know, this is a investment that goes beyond just the next two months. And I think in addition to mass, obviously for healthcare work and the health capacity, our other problem is too many people are getting the virus, which is obvious. I mean, yeah, no shit. Right. But like a big way to stop that, it seems like would be having mass available, training people how to use those masks. And essentially, we should have as many masks as anybody needs ever. And I would imagine that in our society, it's going to be for quite some time here, the idea of mask wearing is going to become a part of our society as much as it is in Asia, maybe permanently now. Uh, but I mean, at least needs to be that way for a while. So if people are going out in public, a sort of gradual reopening, getting into that phase two, how do we prevent uh, more outbreaks? You know, if you can slash that are not to less than one, maybe masks can be a big part of doing that. So there's a really interesting mask story, by the way, out of the, I think it's the Czech Republic, where, uh, of course, European nation and uh, wearing masks was not conventional at all and kind of uh, looked at as maybe strange or taboo to do in public. And this viral video was put forth explaining how masks help, explaining how you can make masks at home, this, this DIY effort where even if your mask isn't the grade it's needed for a healthcare worker, you can do something with your home materials to at least slow down that spread of transmission and almost overnight it's become normal for people in public to wear masks at such a hard such a high level that the idea is now they're looking at you if you go out without a mask and saying like what are you doing that's that's reckless um so yeah yeah the, the german city of jenna is actually a uh, napoleonic war reference there uh is actually mandating that all people who go out in public now uh, wear masks yes yeah, st stay tuned after this where uh, nate and i do our post post show on um war time <laughs> wars of the 19th and 20th century <laughs> yeah so uh 
I think another thing when we talk about the health system capacity, Andrew Cuomo put out a, a tweet asking for healthcare workers to come to New York and help and that when the virus hits other places they can move those around but I mean we really need federal authority federal guidance for so many of these things but this in particular right and and we've got all these planes for example that are sitting idle with the airlines in such trouble now and we have the resources to just move people around and yeah i mean you're not i don't know if we're gonna conscript healthcare workers necessarily but there needs to be some sort of a national mechanism for getting healthcare workers who are in areas where they are not overwhelmed to the places that they are needed and I haven't really seen much of that yet other than just sort of, hey, come help us, please. Or let's put an ad an ad out for travel nurses to come work in New York for eight weeks. I mean, beyond, we just need more than that because uh, there are going to be hot spots over these next few months here. Hopefully, physical distancing has had an effect. But uh, that's another thing that I think we need. Um, what else sticks out to you as just like measures that need to be taken on an overall level here? So I've heard people say that perhaps, you know, testing isn't a priority right now just because we have such widespread community transmission. Um, I have seen pushback against that. I have seen uh, certainly coherent scientific ideas around the idea that part of getting the thing under control, as they did, for instance, in South Korea, when it looked like they were going to have a very rapid outbreak, was to say, hey, we need our testing to scale up greater than the kind of population trace that we need because this thing spreads so fast if we don't have testing capacity we'll lose it so i just i just didn't want to leave that point alone on testing because i think this is also part of the immediate response right now yeah and uh another thought from that aei report was we need the capacity to test seven hundred fifty thousand people per week um again that's that's one where i will cede to the experts that that's the type of capacity that we need but i mean to me i think we even need it where it's like you can get every person can get tested once a week as we're reopening i mean i think you just have to be so proactive about it especially again as we've talked about in past episodes evidence indicating that you can spread this thing without being symptomatic couple other things I want to just run through here. There's a thought that maybe we need to have an ability to allow people with the virus to recover away from their families. That one negative aspect of the physical distancing is, yes, you make sure that someone who has the virus is not spreading it around all over society, but they also are going to be with their families uh, or significant others uh, or whatever. And so those people are more likely to get it now being in a confined space. You're still preventing overall transmission, but it'd be nice if you, those people could also not be transmitting to their families. And so having a place where people can go who are not in critical condition requiring a hospital visit, but can still be comfortable and recover without transmitting it to their families, I, I think that would be a, an important step as well. Yeah. As, I mean, and I mean, I, the, the, you run into some issues that, okay, maybe it wouldn't be voluntary, but I think most people who get this thing would be very eager to not give it to their families. Yeah. And AEI even uh, earmarks that point specifically being able to set up, whether it's a hotel or whatever it is, just set up the opportunity for when someone is flagged as needing quarantine or a possible risk, instead of spreading it or giving it to your family, you can have that option. In addition to that, 
there are already hospitals, uh, hospital workers uh, in different places who are doing this on their own because they don't want to go home and potentially contaminate their family. You know, you had that figure yesterday about the percentage of Spanish healthcare workers who were now infected. Uh, and so that's a very real risk that um, certain medical care workers around the states are already taking into their own hands trying to not contaminate their family. Yeah. Uh, or even if you could have housing for healthcare workers as well who uh, might have it, uh, there's any way that you could give people kind of a safe place to go where you're not transmitting to anyone else if you do have it or may have it. Um, another big issue, obviously, is more in the long term now is possible supply chain issues. And there's news today that the administration is trying to deal with India to secure access to some of the supplies that uh, had been embargoed, actually, from going out of India. It looks like they at least have, have reached some somewhat of an accord on uh, five key medications, which included acetaminophen there. Um, but a, a big part of that would be creating the ability to make these drug items here in the U.S. or working with other countries to try to fix it so that we still have access to that stuff. And maybe that's, you can use some of the, some airlift capacity or some of these empty planes to just say, hey, you know what? These are the things that we need 100%. I know your society is shut down. Maybe you can't send it to a ship, which then is going to go all the way here Two months later, you know, maybe there just needs to be more of a proactive method of securing aspects. We've seen the, the Chinese airlifting masks, for example. I mean, a lot of that's PR because, uh, as we know, you know, a million masks is nice, but it's also, you know, that's like a day's worth <laughs> these days, sadly. Um, but... Uh, to the yeah. extent that there are things that need to be done using or, or things that need to be acquired, either making them here or ensuring unfettered access to supply chains around the world is going to be massive. But ultimately, I think you want to be able to make them here because you don't want to be competing with the rest of the world to get all this stuff, right? I mean, that's A, it's not particularly fair and B, it's just not a good situation to be in. Yeah, and, and I think it's not just this kind of equipment that we need. I think we need to make sure we have our eye on the ball and have the right creative solutions. I don't know what they are because certain supply chains are fairly opaque as a layperson, but just the ability to say, okay, if we need this household common thing that is kind of a, a baseline for just getting through your every day, we need to make sure that that supply chain isn't cut down. And similarly, you know, other people on the front lines right now are all these people who are interacting and having touch points at delivery services, you know, whether you're a driver, oh, yeah. a grocer, a grocer, that's, that's like a Terry Rogier. Um, <laughs> you know, my, my brain had to bring in some kind of basketball. Um, but, you know, this is also discussed in that AEI report as when we, when we talk about the concept of surveillance moving forward, trying to track where this thing is. You know, the U.S., the CDC already has something called, uh, I, I assume it's pronounced ILINET, I-L-I-NET. Uh, and the idea is to try to keep track of influenza activity and when it pops up and if the virus is changing. And so it's just this giant surveillance net. And the thinking is we would need something similar going forward to be able to track hotspots, track outbreaks, understand uh, when we need to change our measures, when we hit those thresholds that we talked about earlier. And one of the key things they mention here is that part of that 
process really has to be keeping an extra eye, an extra eye, more care on people like this. Like if you work, right, if you work as a cashier, their recommendation coming out of that report was you need to be tested repeatedly because in a way you're sort of like an epicenter. You're a little vortex of all of these uh, touch points that happen throughout the day. So yeah, I mean, this kind of stuff to me, uh, long-term of course, but it's certainly something that we, we do not want to have any issues with. And I think to that end, essential businesses, warehouses, delivery, food, all of that, I think we want to have national standards for what you have to comply with now as a business and to obviously get them the supplies that they need. I mean, it just one thing that comes to mind for me, I think there are many others that public health experts could add to this, but just, all right, if you're going to go into an Amazon warehouse, take your temperature before you come in the door every day. You know, I mean, like the, even something like that, I, I mean, any business, I, I think that's essential. That's just like step one to me uh, that would be very easy to do. Even with your home thermometer, you just, you take it, you show it to your supervisor and now you can go into work. And, you know, of course that mass PPE for all these people, I mean, that, there's many other th- things that you can do. And so, you know, I'm sure we've all gotten the email from some company that you ordered a pair of socks from 10 years ago uh, saying, oh, you know, here's what we're doing during coronavirus to keep everyone safe. But I've received many an anecdotal report. There have been many stories. There's a great story about grocery stores in the Atlantic last week of just, yeah, these are all great measures and you can say you're doing all this, but we need more PPE. We need more enforcement of this. It's just, I mean, this is a big change for people. Like people, it's, it's going to take some time, but we have to do enough to protect it, these workers. Um, another another yeah. thing while we're here, if you want, um, is the contact tracing issue. Yeah. Right? So uh, South Korea, for instance, um, they're probably the most notable for doing this very successfully. Basically, what they did was they used smartphone applications or GPS on your smartphone. They use their closed circuit television. They've, you know, we've got some closed circuit television here in the States, but in other countries, this is a, a much more common thing to have a set of eyes on you if you're in a really public place. They used uh, medical facility records. And the other big one that they found successful was credit card transactions. And so the idea is every time someone pops up as testing positive, they didn't know they were positive for the last few days while they were a carrier where things are incubating. And they use all of that technology to then go back and inform as many people as possible that they had contact with. Yeah. And I know that there are definitely a lot of people who I think are rightfully concerned about potential issues uh, with civil liberties. And I have those concerns. But I mean, for me personally, right now, and there's always a line between your freedom and what's best for society. And I do think, though, at least for me personally, like I'm willing to pay that price for myself and to get society back open i mean this is this has to be the number one priority and when things are back to normal i think you can be hopefully this will go away you know we're not hopefully we don't get to the point where it's like in the future oh you have the flu now like you're you're on lockdown that's like going too far obviously but for right now and i mean this has been the case throughout history as well the governments have just needed to do this uh, in the time uh, of ep- epidemics well, A few there's other things well yeah, there's, ahead, there's that that relationship that exists between freedom and 
safety or security. That's always going to yeah. be there, right? So so that that line is going to be different for each person, but I there's certainly there certainly is a, a pattern of success here that has to be balanced against things like oh, there's a couple other things that I've seen uh, ethical concerns brought up that we should mention. 80 roughly 80% according to Pew in the United States own smartphones, so you wouldn't even necessarily hit 100% of people even if you did that kind of stuff. You already have your GPS location on that you share with other apps and you know how how that would work legally or going forward so those are all things to iron out but even without rolling out some fancy smartphone thing that would alert everyone or something like that um, there are still potentially once we get up to scale with testing potentially tracing measures that could really help surgically isolate places that need to be at different levels of quarantine and allow other places to open back up yeah and maybe even we need to increase smartphone usage for this, even if it's only to have the app, I mean, it would be great if we just had, you know, one universal app for the country, right? That that everyone knew how to use and was super easy. And But I mean, think of how many just old smartphones people have like sitting around their houses. You know, it could be, we could do a drive for that. You could buy, you know, the government could buy some, you know, $100 terrible smartphone that can only, you know, just has enough power to run this app. Um, what? I, I think those are all things that maybe you could look at. Um, what, one last yeah. piece of technology before we jump on to the, yeah. the next sort of topic is the idea of serological testing or just identi- oh, sure, yeah. right? identifying people who have already tested positive and have antibodies and all of the opportunity that that can open up once you're flagged as someone who we don't know how long the immunity period is. I think you talked about this yesterday, but having that sort of um, what is Germany issuing a certificate now, right? Just that idea of, okay, we've identified people who now aren't a threat to infect others and they're not a threat to be infected themselves. So we can put them back out on the front lines doing normal economic things for society. Yeah. And maybe even a a way to have those people work in some of the higher risk areas if possible. Um, Another thing that is really concerning a lot of people is our damage to the economy long-term and particularly small businesses. When I talked about, again, the lack of manpower, like who exactly at the federal level is going to be responsible for dispersing these billions of dollars that are supposed to help people. And I think we really need to ramp up our capacity there, the people who can actually evaluate these claims. Again, you know, how long does it take to train someone to do that? I would imagine not that long. But and that's obviously that's something that you can do working from home as well uh, to evaluate these claims, come up with an infrastructure. I also think that some sort of a program or maybe this is legislation to try to spread the pain around a little bit with the to the extent that you can between when you're looking at either people who can't afford to pay rent whether that's businesses or or people who are just living in apartments or whether it's people who own their homes and have lost their jobs and can't pay there are certainly supposed to be programs that are helping with that but i think a legislation overall that when let's say you're a restaurant right and you now can't be open anymore with the exception of takeout a lot of these will have these situations will have the business owner you'll have the landlord and then you might have a mortgage company and i think there's a lot of individual negotiations right now that are going on between those three parties of hey we had this force majeure thing happen is it going to be all on the business owner who's just going to have to keep paying rent even though he has no income well that's not possible now he's going to go out of business well that's not good for the landlord either right because then it's not like the landlord can just go get another tenant we have you can't open another restaurant and even when this is over 
it's just going to be a big problem if all these businesses have gone under. And so I think, again, this is not something I'm an expert on, but some kind of legislation to say, okay, when you get this situation where a business just can't be open, what happens? Do you, is there a way to spread out the pain and the risk among all of the stakeholders in that business, whether it's a mortgage company, whether it's a landowner, whether it's the business itself, to try to keep it so that business is going to be able to come back, even in an event where you know, you're know you not getting a direct subsidy from the government. I don't think that's going to be enough for all of these businesses. That's something that I think we should really take a look at, because if you spread that out among all the parties, yeah, there's some pain for everyone, but maybe you can avoid having that business go completely under. And then when we actually get out of this, you can have that V-shaped recovery because the business hasn't just completely gone bankrupt. Right. I think that's such a great point, actually. The the sort of the distribution of risk across, I mean, if you take a restaurant, right? There's so many restaurants here locally in Los Angeles, and many of them are having to close, and they're really successful restaurants. I think the only ones that are still around, and we don't know how long they're going to be around for, had such high volume that even when you switch to takeout, they still have enough to make the operation run. But I mean, why would you as a landowner or even let's say you're a very wealthy person in the community, if you start to strip away your options to spend your money, what good does that do for you? So some kind of, um, I don't know what it is. I I thought you actually, you would have more legal insight to it than than I would, but. I don't. Yeah, I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what it is, but these kind of measures are the things that um, people certainly want to be thinking about. And, and, you know, tragically, those are the people who typically are in pretty good situations. Then there are people in the country who are, you know, living paycheck paycheck to paycheck or desperate to pay rent. um, And having them uh, just get into even worse situations has historically been very, very, very problematic for everyone else. So you'd want to prevent that as well. So having these kind of longer term economic agreements in place due to a force majeure may be uh, a really, really good thing for everyone to consider. Well, and just having some federal guidance from that or, or at the state level, whatever it is, where because you, know, you just have a way for you know a lot of these mortgage companies, it's tough to get in touch with them. Landlords could own you know, so many properties that you can't have a way to negotiate with them. A lot of business owners just uh, you know, are not particularly savvy in that way. And just to say, hey, we're not going to have to negotiate this for all of the millions of restaurants and small businesses out there. But no, this is like, these are what the guidelines are. If you don't just qualify for the straight up federal assistance, uh, I think be, be really useful. And just, you know, who, who ends up having to, uh, you could also even be say, hey, you know what, for mortgage companies, why don't we say, hey, you guys are going to be the ones who have to take all the pain here. But then we're, we will provide you with assistance directly as opposed to now having to administer every single one of these businesses. Maybe you can scale it a little bit better by saying, all right, you know, rent payments are, are done. Landowner doesn't have to pay his mortgage. And then we'll take care of you, mortgage company, because you own a lot more of these as long as you can document it. And obviously there have to be safeguards in there. And hopefully we could hire a lot more people to make sure that this gets administered properly. Um, that's about all I've got, at least now. This has gone a lot longer than I thought it would. Um, 
Yeah, let's power. Any, any other any other thoughts on just kind of a general robots? I mean, I'm sure we'll come up with a lot more of these problems and possible solutions as things get into focus. But those are the ones that have come up to me over the last you know five six days or so. Yeah, there are some longer term ones. Um, I think at this point we can get to the news. But let me put a little ribbon on that last thought and kind of the end of this discussion, which is a pretty short point. Last night I was watching something on the Irish potato famine of 1845. That's what I like to. Oh yeah, you yeah. you. you wanted something that would be you know a little lighter than exactly yes situation. I, yes i was looking for something um that was a little uplifting but the point there is that they they ran out of resources essentially they had a paucity of resources they literally didn't have food or things of that like we do still have all these resources it's just a matter of making sure that we distribute them and kind of tweak our current measures to take into account the fact that we're not all going to work 40 hours a week and uh, less money is flowing through the economy economy and things like that so that's that's like i always go back to that sort of guiding light of like come on we it's not like we ran out of food let's get to the news yeah what stuck out to you ben over the last couple days or so here so the big thing that i think in line with the sort of uh, larger optimistic outlook going forward is this idea that the checks the um checks from the IRS are going to be issued in uh, approximately three weeks, the stimulus checks. The Let me give you the details that have been put out on that. So basically the way it's going to work is if you have a direct deposit on file with the IRS, um, they're just, you don't have to sign up. You don't have to do anything like that. They're going to send you whatever amount you're eligible for. Uh, if you had 2019 tax return, they'll use it on that data. If not, it'll be 2018. If you had neither 2019 or 2018, you will have to file what they call a simple tax return, just a form to get in the system with your information. Um, more details on that are available at www.irs.gov slash coronavirus, irs.gov slash coronavirus. The IRS asks not to call in with questions, but to go there if you have any further questions, if you don't fall in that basic uh, range of having filed, having um, your direct deposit on file with them. And it's going to start at earners under 75000 a year. You get 1200 per person, 500 per additional child. And then you still get money, but it decreases up to $99,000 a year for singles and some phase-out range for couples between $150,000 and $198,000. So once again, irs.gov slash coronavirus, you can find out more information there. That's about three weeks away. Yeah, and so am I understanding this correctly that for a lot of people, the check is just going to show up? They don't even have to apply for it or anything? Yes, that's what they're saying. Yep. I like that. One thing that stuck out to me is... California, the the essential uh, COVID tracking project noted this. They're only averaging 2,000 tests completed over the last seven days. There are reports in the San Francisco Chronicle that a lot of their testing that they're using has a four to 10 day delay in getting results. And we're seeing reports of some of these tests now. I think the FDA just approved a test that comes back in two minutes, and hopefully those will begin to become more widespread. But on that COVID tracking project, you've seen like tens of thousands more tests than have even been reported are still marked as pending in California. The good news in California, though, is that hospitalizations have remained relatively low, at least compared with, say, New York. Only 1,400 or so hospitalizations reported in California, which is within the capability of the health system to maintain as of now, uh, to not get completely overwhelmed. 
Um, yeah, I've been I've been yeah. optimistic about the trend. It hasn't been too explosive. And the other thing to really consider as the California numbers tick up, I mean, it's a huge state, over 30 million people here, but we in most large places went into a lockdown or had measures in place before some of these eastern board cities that are getting hit. Um, I think up in San Francisco, you guys started on like, you had one in place on like the 10th or the 13th or something very early. I know we had a stay-at-home order issued via text on Friday the 13th. So um, just something that uh, along with those numbers, at least we haven't seen huge explosive growth here yet. Yeah, California uh, on that COVID project, 7,400 positive tests, 21,000 negative. And usually when one note that's been passed around is the idea the who had a press conference about this yesterday that generally if you have greater than a 10 percent positive rate you're probably not doing enough testing yeah that's been their experience where because anyone with flu-like symptoms is going to be wanting a test and so uh, this is a it's over 25 percent positive rate yeah Yeah. um and they still have fifty six thousand tests pending I also noted this, especially with us, uh, our main gig being sports, uh, that tragic story of a choir in Washington state where one rehearsal led to over 40 infections. And we talked about singing somewhat jokingly a couple of days ago, but when you're really both intaking breath deeply to then expel it at the top of your lungs and really project your voice while you're projecting a lot of air and a lot of viral droplets as well that way. And I think the singing in an enclosed space in particular is what made that transmission so explosive and to me that has a lot of implications for the sporting events that we love especially indoor sporting events where you're being encouraged to yell at the top of your lungs to cheer that seems like it would have somewhat of a similar effect i mean it's probably not as bad as a as singing where you're doing it the entire time but uh, that's uh and i think i i wonder if we'll even start to develop something now as a society where hey don't speak so loudly because you're <laughs> because you're potentially expelling more virus particles that'll be a problem for me because i actually speak really loudly but uh so i i think that's going to be a major concern we're talking about getting crowds back to these sporting events being back to normal and that seems like the last thing that's going to happen ultimately and you can really only do that when you can be very confident that you don't have people who have the virus going to these events because there is that super spreading potential yep and there's there's old research on this that actually um some people have circulated that basically looks at how singing or vocalizing loudly there's actually a correlation between how loudly you vocalize and sort of how many of these particles come out of your mouth and so in theory if you're a carrier and you're shedding, um, just yelling and singing and cheering and chanting and all that would make you uh, potentially uh, a higher candidate for loading the people around you. Well, maybe this will mean finally that the uh, the T-shirt canning gets outlawed. <laughs> is that a big? Is that, that that? I mean, at most NBA games, that's what people are screaming the loudest for. Is that your cause to love? Either, either that or like the scoreboard dot race or the fanometer. It's all uh, yeah. all and, outlawed. And, and if you want to know what that's going to look like, by the way, uh, Japanese audiences at sporting events are well known for being incredibly quiet. So maybe they're just ahead of the curve there. This is actually another story that I'm monitoring very closely. I consider this to be one of the biggest overall threats to where things could go downhill a lot more quickly. I I am hopeful that I'm just being a little paranoid here, but 
issues with the supply chain, infections within the supply chain. So Amazon now has reported uh, per Reuters 19 infections at various warehouses. They're forced to close a Kentucky warehouse that was mostly doing stuff related to shoes until April 1st at the direction of the governor. Uh, They said in a statement that it has taken preventative action and that workers' health and safety is its top priority. But the the question becomes, if you do get infections there, I assume they're having those people not go to work, but are you now just staying open and whoever's infected doesn't come to work? How are you protecting your workers? There have been reports in various places, Instacart here in the Bay Area. Uh, There's a talk of a strike, Whole Foods. There's talk of a, a sick out that's, of course, owned by Amazon. And so infections within these essential businesses, particularly related to food, that's a concern for me. Now, are we just going to say, hey, you know, you get infected there, you're off the line, we're just going to continue and we just have to deal with a certain number of infections within these sectors? Maybe that's the best that we can do right now. But obviously, anything we can do to protect those people uh, is essential. Yeah, and I even wonder how sort of um, unique it is just because Amazon is such a, a life force in terms of shipping things through the arteries of the country right now. Because here in LA, locally, uh, a place we've been trying to get takeout food from, it's like an institution. They had a worker test positive yesterday and they've shut the entire operation down. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. Those are more questions that hopefully we can get some clarity on moving forward. Some news that I consider good is that the Army Corps of Engineers is looking to build as many as 341 temporary hospitals, whether that's in temporary structures, whether it's in hotels uh, that are now fallow because you don't have any guests uh, and they've been closed as non-essential businesses. Uh, So that's good news to me that, again, we're big collective action is being taken to increase uh, our hospital capacity and and to do it in a way where uh, you can have coronavirus patients isolated from others. Yep, that's optimistic. Anything anything left on the uh, on the news front here? Let me see if I had anything else. Quick episode, quick roundup here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, a few. Uh, In Indonesia, the government has for weeks reported no cases. That seems very unlikely. And now in a sign that the virus may in fact be spreading there, uh, Jakarta's governor, uh, the capital of Indonesia, says that deaths in the capital may be around 283, which is nearly four times the official count. So not sure what's going on there. Uh, In more of the funny money statistics, China has now admitted that they're about 1,500 more asymptomatic cases than they had admitted in their official data before. It's unclear if some of that's part of that lost 43,000 that the South China Morning Post reported on, uh, but and whether they're going to just slow play those 43,000 into circulation uh, as cases uh, because they don't want to admit that they just eliminated 43K all at once. Who knows? But uh, another indication that the statistics out of China are at least somewhat suspect. Yeah. I mean, we've mentioned it before. Um, I think the report that was originally put out has had enough information that's been predictive in other places that it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, we should completely disregard it and throw it out. But I think a healthy dose of skepticism uh, is sort of the, the right way to look at their information as of now. Yeah. And I would also say, I think some of the, uh, my just general thought beyond what you you think of this is just that the more specific the information is and coming from lower sources as well uh, in the food chain, you know, coming from doctors, for example, studies of patients, for example, I'd be more inclined to trust those 
than the high level official numbers that the government can really get to and massage and that it's going to be relying on for PR. Yeah. Did we mention, I can't even keep track of now what the day is. Did we mention the closing of the movie theaters? We got to that the other day, right? Uh, I think I, I might have hit on it briefly yesterday. Okay. Just just to um, recap really quickly so people understand what we're saying here. They, they were planning to reopen. We had talked about it. Uh, some announcements of reopening Wuhan on April 8th and all this stuff and subway traffic uh, coming back online in China. And then there was this mass closure of movie theaters a couple days ago. So to, to just to the spirit of the conversation, it's, it's a little hazy. Uh, I liked your term there. There may be some funny money just to uh, view this with a, a pinch of skepticism. Well, and the last point I can make too, uh, a lot of what we are doing, we are learning from the Chinese response. And I mean, it seems pretty clear that they at least got the virus under control enough that they're not just getting like crazy community transmission. And they did that through extreme physical distancing, perhaps the most stringent in the world, in the Wuhan province and other places. But we're seeing if they're taking some halting steps to reopen here. And this is based on at least official data of no new cases at times. Again, it's unclear whether these 1,500 cases are new cases or whether they're old cases that they just didn't acknowledge before. But I think we, we are going to have to learn from this as well. And to me, it, you really have to just, we got to have it so buttoned up before we start reopening. Because I think that if you want this V-shaped recovery, and this is why I go back to this idea of, hey, let's have a benchmark where we know that we're not reopening until we get to this point as a society. I think that that actually gives people more certainty. It's when you're reopening a little bit and ah, now we got to close down again for individual businesses, for yeah. states, cities, whatever. That's what I think is really going to hurt morale. It's going to erode confidence in the public health authorities as the, maybe you could argue this mask thing already did. Um, so, so that's why I, I like that of just saying, yeah, this is what we're all shooting for as a nation and we can't reopen until we get there. Uh, and there's also actually a, a study out of Italy, which indicated that compliance with social distancing worked better when it, the initial time horizon was longer than when you had a shorter time horizon and then you extended out. That's when just psychologically people are like, oh, well, they take it worse and they start violating the uh, measures a little bit more. So uh, the idea of, of having, you can have this further out there people can wrap their minds around that and then hey if you can open up faster then everyone can be happy and you'll actually get more compliance with these measures than if you go short and then extend it out for longer you mean under promising and over delivering people like that <laughs> just checking okay uh all right well this was a, a long one today uh, thanks so much for listening uh, we, we mentioned how you can support this endeavor uh since i am paying ben to be uh, on the show uh patreon.com slash duncan larue is a, a great way uh since we're probably not going to be getting sponsorship for this i wouldn't think that would be the right move but if if you think that this is valuable and you want to support it that is a great way to do it and we appreciate your listeners and also uh, tell your friends about this too if you think this is worthwhile the idea is you listen to this and now you don't have to watch cnn all day it's curated it's hard-hitting stuff that gets you what you need to know on a day-to-day -day basis and now you can go around about your life and not have to read six hours of news because uh, ben and i already did that for you so for ben we'll sign off and we'll be back tomorrow with a a very special guest for a little bit reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem uh, 
Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 